Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You know, David, my friend, a few years ago I read an article somewhere, I don't remember where, and people are going to flame me online because of this, but I'm going to say it anyway. They said the reason that Rush Limbaugh became a conservative talk show host is because after starting in radio and not doing very well at it in the various mediums that he tried in radio, he decided to approach political commentary from the conservative point of view. This is not to say that he isn't sincere about what he says, but again, he also looked at the fact that this was a place where he could make a living. And so I wonder if some of those talk show hosts out there that claim to be interested in the paranormal simply do it because that's where the bread is buttered and for no other reason. And outside of the show, they really don't know an awful lot about the subject. And sometimes within the show, they don't seem to know an awful lot about it. Why would they do it, though? I mean, is there that kind of money in the field? Where is it? (laughs) Well, I guess if you're on Coast to Coast AM, you'll make a decent Uh, amount of money. But I don't think any of the other paranormal talk show hosts are getting anything more than any other radio announcer is. And that's not a lot of money. Well, it it requires effort, I suppose. That's the thing. Well, no, beyond effort, you have to be genuinely interested in the stuff. Otherwise, why would you even want to talk about it? Because it's weird. I mean, people, Gene, I think for the most part, there's an aversion to being associated with this topic, at least from the point of view of any sane person. (laughs) I mean, well, I guess the coast-to-coast guys must make some decent money, right? Oh, sure. We're talking about the millions of dollars for George Norrie and Art Bell. Jeez, really? Yes. But remember, they have, what, five or ten million listeners. They're on 500 radio stations. They're heard around the world. And, of course, their network is owned by Clear Channel, the largest Uh. radio chain in the world, so Uh we can understand that. But if somebody's working at one or two stations, unless it's in a major market, they will be making a living, certainly. Nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they will be making a lot of money. Maybe they needed to make a paranormal show, and they they hit the short straw, the long straw, whatever straw they're supposed to hit. Hmm. I don't know. It's a lot of fun talking about these topics. Uh, the last year we've been having really great discussions, I think. Some of them, some of them have been maybe a little questionable, but for the most part, I've, I've had a really good time talking about these things. And, uh, you know, Gene, the whole reason that we started doing this, I mean, it really came out of a discussion about, well, gee, what do you know about this stuff? Well, I don't know. What do you know about it? And, gee, don't you want to know more about these topics? Is there anything more important, ultimately, to understanding who we are and where we come from than to try to understand? these things that you can't just point at and go, this is what this is. I mean, these are the mysteries, Gene. These are the things that we don't know. And so it seems to me like it's a, a noble thing to try to understand the unknown. It, it seems like a basic human need. Well, it doesn't seem like it. It has to be, right? Of course, we're talking about the fundamental mysteries of life. Are we alone in the universe? Do people survive after death? There's so many questions here. What about other creatures, intelligent creatures that may share our space on our own planet? So many mysteries, so many questions. Talking about the, the, the different types of forms of life. I mean, my God, look at the planet Earth. Look at the diversity of life that exists on this planet. And the stuff that has existed, what is it, like 99% of all the species that have ever lived on the planet are now gone? 
Mm. I mean, the one way to look at that is to say, well, that's what happens on a planet. Species live, species die. This is the cycle of life. And, it, and that seems to be fairly consistent. At the same time, it underscores the incredible diversity of the life that has come through here and the incredible diversity of life that we know about on the planet. Here we are in 2007, and last year, how many new types of plants and insects and animals were discovered? People think, well, you're not going to discover new, let's say, mammals. That can't be done. You know, we, we know where everything is. We know what everything is. Well, well, no, we don't. And that's what I think people don't realize. There is this tendency to engage in human vanity, Gene. And that's, uh, you know, to me, that's what it all, all boils down to. People believe that they understand the nature of the universe. And the fact of the matter is, at this point, we don't understand the majority of what makes up the universe. We know that there is, well, we think there are these things called dark energy and dark matter. They make up like 78%, 80% of the makeup of the universe. We don't even understand anything about the nature of this energy and this matter. So what makes us think we really know about the diversity of life in the universe? We don't. And we have to assume that there is much life throughout the universe. Why wouldn't there be? Well, of course, we have ego problems here, so we think we know everything, even though we don't. Uh, well, uh, Steve Jobs knows everything. There are exceptions to every rule. Now, I sometimes think some of these other talk show hosts don't know everything, even though they supposedly are well-connected, very popular. They ought to know what's going on. Like, I guess we'll call him a new colleague of ours, was on a show for about three minutes on that big national show. Yep, yep, on that big coast-to-coast -coast show. I mean, that thing that's on coast-to-coast. -coast. Wait, what did I say? <laughs> well, yeah, we, we had the one of the... Um, Top guys of AboveTopSecret.com was on Coast to Coast. It was a three-minute segment. It's one of the first times I've actually really listened to the show, and people might be shocked to hear that. But for any number of reasons, I've never really spent time listening to Coast to Coast. And I'm happy to admit that and confess that. But I did listen the other night when um, Mark Allen was on, and he had about three minutes, literally. Here's a guy who runs one of the top conspiracy UFO and paranormal-related sites in the world, and he was given three minutes on the Coast to Coast show. And I have to tell you, I was shocked that Nori didn't seem to be aware of ATS or certainly not familiar with it, which uh, is really fascinating, given that this is the place probably where more discussion on these topics is happening on the Internet than anywhere else. You'd think a guy who had a show about this would know about it in order to do research on topics that the show was covering. But, hey, what can I say? Well, of course, no individual host can know everything, but he's got an organization behind him. He has producers, researchers. He has the vast assemblage of personnel that works for premier radio networks, the same network, of course, that has Rush Limbaugh on there during the day. Certainly, they have more than enough money to find out something, give the guy a sheet of paper saying, this is above top secret. Mm -hmm. They yeah, can't do that? Oh, I mean, look, in today's day and age, if you've got a show about these topics, you should be able to open a browser window, and you should be able to go and search out basic information if you're doing a show. Why not? I mean, at this point, nobody can have an excuse for not doing the most basic Google research, Gene. Everybody knows how to use Google. You go to Google, you type in what you're looking for, and you hit the return key. And look, the issue of filtering through information, doing research, actually thinking about the topic is another one. But the fact of the matter is that there is no excuse for someone like 
George Norrie not to be on the Internet reading the stuff. This is what he does for a living. If he makes a very good living doing it, I mean, if I was making that kind of money, I can tell you I'd be on a lot more than just ATS. Well, I understand it that when he does his show, he actually stands up with a headset and mic and walks around. So he's not in any position to go and actually work on a computer and maybe... Do a little clicking and dragging. Yeah, well, he shouldn't click while he's on air live so that the mic can hear it and, you know, really piss off his co-host. But uh, (laughs) listen, if Donald Rumsfeld could stand up at a desk in the Pentagon and direct the war effort, because that's the thing. Apparently, he has like a standing office. He stands up all the time. I think it has something to do with his iced underwear, but not that I read that on a thread anywhere. I mean, you know, you got to do your research. <laughs> so Nori can do a show standing up. Why not? I mean, you can go read a computer while you're standing up. That, what are you like his apologist? What is this? I would never apologize for George Nori. Replace George Nori, yes, because I think you and I would do a lot better. But apologize no. for him? No. I mean, he seems like a perfectly decent guy. Let's just leave it there. By the way, yeah, that's fine. Sure. Speaking of research, therein lies a tale. And of course, last week we had Peter Davenport of the National UFO Reporting Center mm-hmm. reporting some of the stuff he knows, and then. Then you and our friend Jeff Ritzman got into it full steam ahead, and for at least a week, you ended up doing not much else but checking out some alleged photos. Well, I was doing other stuff. It was actually a Photoshop kind of a week. That's a whole <laughs> other topic. But yeah, Jeff and I spent a lot of time looking at photographs and trying to figure out what was real and what was Memorex. Well, we'll find out what is real, what is Memorex, or at least make some effort to move in that direction on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. 
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Jeff Ritzman, you're yes, active on the above top secret message boards. I am. And you're handed occasionally some digital stuff to look at and came into your hands at one point two photos, evidently cell phone photos, that allegedly depicted the UFO at O'Hare Airport. So can you right. take us on the journey? Well, actually, we, the, the first photo, uh, when it first showed up from a user whose, whose username was, uh, a, I believe it was a consecutive zero, number zeros, yeah, showed up. Uh, I can't even remember which day it is because I'm kind of in, in a haze right now for... Um, <laughs> for the lack of sleep that I've had this week. But at any rate, it showed up. And usually my first look at it is is uh, just the overall composition of it looked okay. My next turn from there is, you know, let's go scour the net and see if we can find the photo that it may or may not have been derived from if it's a fake. And uh, at that point, I went out on the net and began looking for O'Hare airport shots so that, hey, you know, even if I can't find the one that might have been used to concoct it, I can certainly find out if it's O'Hare or not. And I went out on the net and I found a shot that was actually on a uh, what appears to be a, a Japanese businessman's blog of a shot that, that I nicknamed Congested because it, it's showing the congestion of incoming flights to O'Hare Airport. And it seems to be framed from around the same spot that the UFO photo was taken by or taking at taken at and um, when I overlaid them uh, certain things seemed to match up pretty well the runway seemed to match up the buildings seemed to match up so I'm like well it's definitely O'Hare question is now where at O'Hare and second of all is this the photograph that was used to derive the UFO photograph from is is it a fake and um, I began looking at the similarities and pointing some of those out to David at that point uh, such as the runway and the buildings and so forth but uh, as Dave and I slowly got to looking at this. And, of course, I'm posting this all as we're going along. So people on the on the ATS board actually got to follow along, for the most part, what David and I were doing. And we began to see that there was uh, a significant amount of distortion between the two photographs. The, um, the UFO photograph off to its right seems to get progressively more distorted than... Um, than the congestion shot. So we, we're looking at that and we're looking at colors and, and spots that aren't there. I mean, to the point where we're looking at the two photographs and the congestion shot does not have everything that, that the UFO shot has. And these are such small and or insignificant changes or differences that we're saying, you know, if somebody was going to fake this, why the hell would they put something mm -hmm. like this small dot in? Why would this color be in there? Why? This is ridiculous. They can't be from the same photograph. Ocular distortion aside, it, it appears to be to be taken at the same spot, but it's certainly not the same camera that shot both shots. So we ruled that out from that point, and I began going to work on Google Earth trying to find the actual runway that this shot was taken on. Um, you know, as you progress with the journey, Jeff, maybe explain to some of our listeners who aren't as well connected as we are online exactly what does this photograph show, the first one that came to your attention? The first one shows a shot that looks, um, you know, runways are pretty much constructed like, you know, you get your main runway or, or takeoff or landing area, and then you have um, a series of connective rungs between, or little roads between the landing strip and what's called a taxiway, where they taxi the plane over to the terminal. This photo looks to have been 
taken in the middle of one of these rungs or small connective roads. Looking down the runway, uh, you see uh, structures off in, in the distance uh, in some trees. You definitely get a lay of the horizon. And you're also seeing what amounts to like an M&M-shaped gray object hanging in the upper right side of the picture. Not the horizon gray, is you know, yeah, not, not solid, solid gray. gray. No, there's there's points where it's it's uh you know as witnesses said that you know they had a hard time focusing on this object if they looked away from it here and there that it was it had a camouflage quality to it. You can get that feeling by looking at this photograph. It does seem to me to be a real candid shot. It doesn't seem like it was set up. It, the 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 horizon is actually has a pitch to it. Um, it's not a level photograph, and it seems to me. I mean, it seems very much like what you would expect if someone was in the cockpit of a plane and, and just shot this out the window, or or a passenger on a plane. I don't know. Turned around and shot through the window. It seems it seems very much like what you would expect to see. But that's what the photograph shows. It's just a it's a shot down the end of a runway that is showing all this. You know, as we started looking at this more and more and posting some of the stuff that we were finding that was unusual about the photograph and the differences between it and the congestion shot, which... I don't think a lot of people wanted to admit that, yeah, there were a lot of differences in them. I mean, I yeah. found it, and, and I, I made the statement on, on the message board, you know, look, you know, I'd like nothing better than to have the feather in my cap to have found it. But the fact of the matter is I can't dismiss the differences, not only that David pointed out to me, but all the ones that I found once we got on that path. And I'm not really interested in feathers anyway. So <laughs> it's just one of them things. They make you sneeze, that, as you a matter of fact. I can't, There's too many of them, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't walk away from things that... that that could potentially be authentic, uh, you know, for you know public opinion that I'm I'm right or I'm wrong. You know, it's uh, I got to go with what I'm seeing, and at that point, we began to notice things uh, in different specific channels. That once a couple real simple operations were pretty much done on those individual channels of the of the picture, showed some really interesting anomalous things that. You know, again, how far is someone going to go to fake something? And at that point, you know, you know, there's been a lot of cases that have come along to me over the years that that I've had to kind of walk away from and and leave unknown. You know, other other anonymously submitted photographs that uh, you know I just look at them and like you know I don't know what to do with this because. I can't say someone's going to try and fake a small portion or fake this small. I mean, it, it becomes a well. The it thing becomes is, an odd thing, you know. Yeah, the, the, you can't prove or disprove intention in this right. situation. That that's where this gets very sticky. And as Jeff is pointing out, and what seemed to evade a lot of people who were also looking at these photos, they were doing the most basic overlays and comparisons, going, "Oh, look, it's the same image." Right. But like anything else, if you take the time to zoom in and really notice things. What became obvious were the facts that some of the differences were the kinds of things that if you were taking the congestion shot, as we call it, the original image that Jeff found on the web, and if you were to compare them with the changes between the, that image and the UFO image, there were additions that wouldn't make sense in the context of converting one photo to another. Exactly. And so you had a combination of ocular distortion issues. You had the fact that uh, there were these small things, and then there were also big things like the gradient in the sky. Now, 
The congestion yeah. shot is what appears to be fairly clear skies. And uh, the UFO shot, well, we know that on the day that this was a scene over O'Hare, that it was overcast. Um, it was a gray sky. This overcast gray sky does indeed appear on the UFO shot. And when Jeff and I were originally talking about it, the whole thing about looking at the coloring of the sky, one might look at it and think, oh, gee, they just did a gradient, a, a dark gray to light gray gradient with, like, let's say, the gradient tool in Photoshop. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, the Photoshop guru of Earth. And we have Jeff Ritzman joining him, also a graphic digital imaging specialist. And they're talking about cell phone pictures purportedly showing the UFO at O'Hare. David, continue this explanation because it's really getting fascinating. Well, when one approaches, for example, changing a sky, and a lot of the conventional wisdom online was that maybe someone just added a simple gradient using the equivalent of Photoshop's gradient tool uh, and using a linear uh, dark gray gradient at the bottom to light gray gradient at the top. Well, the fact of the matter is that on uh, sort of a very simple glance at it, one might come to that conclusion. But uh, the devil's in the details. And taking that image, one of the things that I've learned over the years is about the power of the LAB color mode. This is in Photoshop. One of the ways in which one can represent the color values of an image is not by using the sort of standard default color mode, which is RGB, red, green, blue, and an in image broken up into those component channels. LAB color is... Um, is more capable, more powerful than RGB. In fact, for the Photoshop geeks that might be listening to this, whenever you take an RGB file and convert it to CMYK for printing on uh, prepress applications, the actual color conversion occurs inside of the LAB color space. LAB color space has a much wider gamut or ability to represent colors than either RGB or CMYK. So it's a very powerful color space, guys. And um, what I did was I took the image and converted it to LAB color mode using the image and mode submenus in Photoshop. And that basically takes the RGB and converts it to a lightness channel that is primarily the real detail of the image. And then these two color component channels, A and B. Very often you can find interesting artifacts and anomalies in the B channel of an image that's been converted to LAB. Looking at the B channel and doing some equalization on it revealed the actual shape of the gradient in the background sky. And it's not a simple shape. It's not a, a simple linear gradient. It's what you'd expect to see in a natural and tropic photograph. It's actually cones of light. And in the specific case of this gradient, you have a big cone or zone of light on the left, a big zone of light on the right, and a central sort of a bubble of light in the middle. This is, the, again, sort of characteristic not only of an entropic natural setting, but also could be reflective of the idea of this image being distorted through some sort of optics, which also made me think not only is this, in my consideration, a real gray sky, but it's almost as if we're seeing partially 
the effects of this image having potentially been shot through a piece of curved glass, which creates a certain type of shape to the gradient. This was also reflected in some of the ocular distortion issues that Jeff brought up. I wanted to interrupt with one question, which sort of occurs to me, which may be something you can amplify on as you explain further, David. And that is, can you get enough detail from a cell phone photograph to be able to analyze all this stuff? Well... You can arrive at one level of conclusions by looking at a cell phone image. You know, uh, some of the cell phones now have multi-megapixel shots. This was not one of them. This was a relatively low-resolution cell phone shot. So the amount of information that's there is, is minimal. It's not what you'd like to have. There are some things you can determine by it. One of the other problems, of course, is that, like most cell phones, this thing spits out a JPEG file, and a JPEG file with some considerable amount of compression. This compression creates in the image a certain type of distortion. Um, it essentially takes the image and converts it into the equivalent of these mosaic blocks, these quadrants, that are the results of the mathematics underneath of JPEG, which are called DCTs, or discrete cosine transforms. The idea is that you create essentially what amount to eight by eight quadrants, where there is some averaging. It's not completely averaged out, otherwise your image would look like a big blurry mess. But um, if you take an image that's been heavily JPEG, you can see these like squarish blocks going through it. Those are the artifacts of fairly extreme DCT compression. And DCT, by the way, is the underlying um, algorithm or approach, mathematical approach, that you find in both JPEGs in terms of still images and MPEG video. So this is a pretty well-established standard, and it achieves a very high level of compression. The point being guys, that a cell phone shot doesn't give us as much as we'd want, but we have something to work with. Well, it certainly is a start anyway, but now let's kind of progress further here. Looking at the two pictures, are they real or a Memorex or some combination of the two? Hmm. <laughs> you want to take that one, Jeff? No, uh -oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other shot showed up, and at this point, you know, when I got to posting and looking at the first shot and going over it, and then David coming in and, and, and us working together and me posting basically like our progression as we went along on ATS, I ended up getting a phone call from Mark Allen, who's one of the owners of uh, AboveTopSecret.com. And when he and I were talking one day about what we were finding and what we were seeing, and and I said to him at that point, I said, you know, this isn't this isn't the only one you're going to get. <laughs> I said, um, th this thing allegedly held up, held up there for you know 20 minutes over a populated area. I said, I can't imagine that this is the only shot we're going to get. We're, we've got to be able to get more. And essentially, probably within a day of me saying that, this other one showed up, which is a shot that appears to be out the window of a concourse uh, for American Airlines, and uh, it shows the object in the upper left corner. To put, to put it bluntly, David and I were still like working on the first one. We didn't really have that much time to go over the second one, although we said, okay, well, good, we've got another one in the wings waiting. Let's let's yeah, kind of yeah, take it's a, sort, it's a sort rough look. You know? yeah. It looks yeah. interesting. Let's, let's, let's hold on a minute and try and slow down because, again, at that point, and I don't think it can be stressed enough that to people to realize this, listeners, uh, people on the boards, whatever, uh, to know that, you know, that this um, 
stuff doesn't happen overnight, you know. And um, I think a lot of people want that instant gratification of, of hearing it's real or it's not, thinking that it's it's like like a simple call, and it's not. Yeah, yeah um, it's not. It's not at all. And I think part of the reason I didn't get a lot of sleep was because I was trying to, <laughs> I was trying to cater, I was trying to cater to people's need to to have an answer, and I was trying to. You know, to to stay on it and keep my my frame of mind going at the time, but it doesn't happen overnight. So we're still on the first one. Around about within that time, I also got a a message from from Mark Allen that we had a witness who was willing to speak with us. Okay, now you raised uh, yeah. a cliffhanger. Yeah, that's a cliffhanger. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're proud to have our great friend of the show, Jeff Ritzman, and personal friend join us to share his information, his expertise. So we have an eyewitness, do we? Yes, that kind of sent me for a loop because I'm like, wow, you know, I've made some estimations as to where uh, this runway is, which which we ended up uh, finding, I believe it's 4R. If I look at my map, I can tell you that. Yeah, 4R was the runway that this was shot at. And I went around on Google Earth and pretty much found where I think the spot is that the actual UFO shot was taken. And by using that, I gave like a rough line of sight as to where the UFO would be hanging in the air, uh, which was just off to the uh, the side of, of runway 4R, the end of it. Uh, I had spoke briefly about that on ETS, and um, and then of course we get the witness, you know. So I get her phone number. She wants to remain anonymous. I never problem with that. I know her name. The the guys on ATS know who she is. But uh, I called her, and uh, you know, I mentioned to her that that I had done some rough triangulation of where I thought this this object was hanging. And she gave me her location when she first sighted it, which was at uh, what appears to be a fairly major intersection near the airport. And then later on, she moved to a parking lot because she couldn't stop right on the road uh, to see the object. So I had asked her whereabouts was this thing hanging when you first saw it. And based upon where she was, she gave me the right location for where I had pegged this thing as being. Mm-hmm. At that point, 
she went on to tell me, which which I found really interesting because we had about I think it was close to two hour conversation on the phone, some details about um, about things that that we're not going to talk about because essentially it's going to give us more or less an edge over any more false pictures that would happen to come up. And that's an important tool to have right now because we're we're at this point where I personally think we're going to see a lot more photographs coming forward. This is kind of like the prosecutor in a criminal action where certain evidence is withheld because they don't want to get bogus evidence and they can basically investigate the thing. So you're not trying to keep things secret for the sake of secrecy here. No, no. We need to explain that because a few people are going to say things. That's a big big misconception, that, and, and it happens all the time in UFO cases where the research says, well, I can't really divulge that right now. It's not because he's trying to like keep a one-up on the public or withhold anything. It's just that you got to be really careful about when you're public about a case and you're public about what you're finding. There are certain things that witnesses tell you that you have to keep as like control uh, parameter of, of saying, you know, uh, we know that uh, on a certain day this happened or that happened, or and, and this is not widely known. So therefore, when we look at a photograph, we can say, okay, well, this doesn't seem to coincide. With, with what witnesses are saying that we haven't talked about. So keeping those close to the cuff gives us a bit of an advantage when we're looking at other photographs to say something doesn't match up or some particular quirk isn't there that everybody said was there. And then we know, you know, this is a way to qualify that we're looking at something that's real versus it's not real, or at least which direction we should proceed with it. But I asked her when she saw the photographs, the two that were posted on the net at the time, I said, uh, do those kind of jive with you? Do they do they look like what you saw? And she said, uh, well, the second one, not so much, which I thought was kind of interesting. She says, I don't, I don't particularly think that the the shape is right. I said, okay, well, what about the first one? She goes, she is, oh well, the first one, that's like that's it. And she was real emphatic about it, which you know, again, tended to coincide with her location on the map versus where I had the UFO pretty much guesstimate uh, as as far as uh, location seemed to jive with that and then um, pretty much we found out that the the second shot was in fact a fake that we found the the actual base image that it was used that was used to make it uh, so we pretty much you know tabled that pretty early on which is lucky because I didn't want to spend another 48 hours on uh, <laughs> on the next shot with no sleep and, and your wife uh, at that point know, was preparing the divorce papers yeah she was packing my stuff it was going out on the lawn so you know th- that was good to, that was good to know and you know again that to me uh, speaks volumes about about the eyewitness uh, which by the way that is her handle on <laughs> on ATS is eyewitness that speaks volumes about uh, about her credibility as far as I'm concerned that you know she she kind of said really early on before me and Dave really even got to go over it a lot she said it didn't look right to her so she gave me some really interesting stuff as far as her own experience of seeing it which I got to tell you I, I felt kind of disconnected from the whole event until I talked to her and when you talk to her it's like I almost feel like I was there too so it's like her description was that she was at an intersection and saw this thing hovering. She was fairly close to it, and uh, she couldn't stop in traffic, but she was stopped at an intersection, I believe, or passing through an intersection. And she said, I saw a lot of people pulled over actually shooting this thing with cell phones and cameras Mm -hmm. and what have you. Mm -hmm. Then she drove to a parking lot at the airport because she was going to pick up a friend of hers. And essentially, well, now, hold she on. said, let's, that, qual- let, let's qualify yeah. something here. This is a friend who was part of a flight crew coming in, I think it was an yes. Air France flight. Yeah, coming in from something France. like uh-huh. that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. And 
actually, she said that when she got to the parking lot, there were a lot of people out of their cars looking at this thing. And they had a pretty good vantage point <laughs> from what I'm looking at. And she said they, they all stood there, and there was a lot of people, again, with cameras and cell phones shooting this thing. So there's a lot of photographs out there. 20 minutes is a long time, which is the approximate length of how long this thing was there. She said that the bottom of the craft had a real interesting quality. Her, her statement to me was that the, the skin of this thing was about as intriguing as hell. <laughs> she said that the bottom of it uh, seemed to look like it had, uh, and she said, she said, this is going to sound crazy to you. And I said, no, nothing sounds crazy to me, trust me. <laughs> she says, um, the bottom of it seems to look like um, a lot of gnats, what you would see if you saw a lot of gnats. Uh, flying around something, but all packed together under the bottom of this thing. Essentially, Such as swarming. In other words, yeah. She said that it had a real. And I, I said to her, I said, would it be kind of akin to like a TV a snow noise. effect, snow, snow noise. noise? But she says, yeah, but really fine, like a fine grain. And I was like, yeah, fine grain and and movement. She said there was lots of little tiny movements, like all over it. I was like, <laughs> you know, pardon my. <laughs> Pardon my uh, my adolescent remark, but I was like, "Cool." <laughs> and um, I, I'm looking over the notes as I'm as I'm talking to this about this tiny movements all around it. She said that that she believed that if you were above this object in a plane, say, that you would have a very hard time seeing it because it seemed to have almost a camouflage effect to it. She said it seemed to reflect a lot of the clouds. It seemed to reflect some of the ground or be darker. And she also said that the thing seemed to be spinning in a counterclockwise direction incredibly fast. So no doubt, it, it seems to me that she believes it was definitely spinning. She said that uh, the, the velocity of it was just crazy in 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 the uh, in the rotation. I had asked actually, her. Actually, oh, well, I have to tell you that would actually yeah. make it difficult to yeah. evaluate what in what direction it was spinning because at a certain point, at a certain speed, your eye really can't tell. Right, and, so and I had asked. Like counterclockwise could actually be clockwise. It's you know at that right, point. like like you see a truck tire on the Beltway is the perfect right. example. You know they sometimes exactly. they look like they're going backwards. But I had asked her because so many people had said that this thing was metallic and that um, it was smooth and relatively featureless. I had asked her because it's it bears asking. I said um, if it was so smooth and it seemed to be like a a, a metallic type of a texture, how could you tell it was moving? How could you tell it was spinning? In other words. And she said, well, there seemed to be a darker area or areas that she could see on it that was giving her the impression that it was spinning. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let me stop um, the spinning here and tell our listeners. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Begetney. And David and I are talking with Jeff Ritzman about the UFO sighting at O'Hare Airport in Chicago back in November. We talked first about those two cell phone photographs and now this witness. And you're talking about something here, Jeff, about something rapidly spinning. Do I take it correctly? Yes. Yeah. Um, she said there was no question in her mind that, that it was definitely spinning. Uh, and, and she did remark to me that she was trying at the time when she was seeing it to remain somewhat 
I guess, calm or detached from it a bit to really, to really take in everything that she could. She was very intent on remembering every little detail and recalling every little nuance that she could notice uh, about it. Which she, I'll tell you what, she gave me the best description I've gotten out of a witness in a really long time. As now, about as, this witness, you know, Jeff. Yeah, she's somebody who got in touch with above top secret, right? She is. Yeah. So uh, she's somehow connected with UFOs or interested in the subject no I think I think it was a friend of a friend's uh, recommendation that uh, that a photo had shown up or I think when the show, photo shown up had shown up on ATS I think that, that was a pretty big breaking story and it went all over the net and I think probably anyone looking for O'Hare info would have been you know pretty much funneled into ATS at that point to, to see what was being seen and uh, and I think that's where that came from in the way of how she how she got to ATS now, I don't I don't think she was particularly uh, I don't think she was a UFO gal uh, before this <laughs> although, I, although I think she probably could be now she said that that the uh, the sighting had a real it was a real eye-opener for her and and it, you could tell by the way she described things that it seemed to have a, a pretty good impact on everybody who saw it that day that I had asked her you know when it left I said uh, you know they claim it poked a hole through the, the cloud cover of the day and I had asked her I said well how did it leave what did it do she said that there was zero acceleration that the object went from point blank zero to God knows how fast incredibly fast obviously with absolutely no acceleration it was just instantaneous boom gone and when it left it poked a hole in the clouds I said could you see through the clouds could you see the hole and she said no she said, but um, it did not. She could see the hole, but she couldn't see blue sky through it. She said that the hole was more or less an angled hole that she couldn't see the blue sky through, but she could definitely see the hole. It was an angled hole, as in the ship didn't head straight up. It didn't head straight up. At an angle. Yeah, at an angle, right. exactly. But not at an angle. She wasn't in a position where she, she was directly underneath of it to see through it. Exactly. Right. And um, I asked her what, uh, you know, there was people in the parking lot and what have you. I said, well, what was their reaction? And she kind of snickered and she's like, gasps. And I said, really? And she said, you could hear them. <laughs> you know, when this thing left, you could hear these people, I guess, off to her left and right, that she said gasps and screams. She said the friend that was with her screamed and then gasped about it. And that when she went into the airport, that people seemed to be a little freaked out and quiet, which is kind of like the opposite of what I would think if I were... I would think a lot of people, I asked her, I said, were people like standing around in little groups like talking about it? She's like, no. <laughs> she said they were that little freaked out acting, a little a little shocked about it, and nobody was really talking, which uh, is interesting as to me. I mean, just uh, I'm, I'm really interested in people's reactions to this kind of stuff, and that was, really, uh, that was a really interesting thing. I'm glad I asked her. But, uh, you know, she was really forthcoming, really honest, really, I mean, if she didn't know, she said, I don't know. We talked a little bit about, you know, about her personal impressions and, and whatnot, which I'm not sure I should, if I should talk about on the show or not. But she had some really interesting personal impressions about it. I will say that when it left, she did mention to me, I said, um, what did it make you feel like when it left? And she said, well, and maybe she she meant, uh, she she was thinking that I meant emotionally when I was talking about maybe physically. I didn't give her, I didn't really give her any direction. I didn't lead her in that question. Mm-hmm. She said, um it tingled. And I said, what do, you, what do you mean? And she said, well, my, I tingled like all over just before it left. 
And um, that's something that I've heard mentioned from some other witnesses that there was like a, uh, I think one fellow mentioned that uh, it felt like he'd taken off a sweater, like a static tingle yeah, yeah. just before it left. And yes, she said, really, kind of common, yes. she said, really, that was kind of like the only inkling that something is weird and, and you know, is something going to happen or what have you? There was no real, you know, it wasn't like this thing glowed real bright and shot through the. It was there was no warning to this. It just put up through the clouds. Um, well, that's a question too. Did it go up through the clouds or wink out? No, it definitely no, traveled it up. She said, "Yeah, she said it definitely went up." I wanted and, to clarify um, that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and for for the sake of size, uh, when she was viewing it from her final point. I asked her what would just cover the object if she were to hold it out her outstretched arm. Uh, she said a, a nickel may be a little bit larger. That's a pretty big object. That's pretty <laughs> That's pretty close. I asked her what, if it was sitting in front of her, what would be her estimation as to how big it was, which is more or less an unfair question to ask, but I at least wanted to get her impression of it. She said, well, if I had to guess, probably around 25 foot across. She said it wasn't this humongous object, but it did seem to be... Yeah, about 25 foot uh, in, in, in diameter. So, you know, she was a really interesting lady to speak with. And uh, and like I say, I know her name and, and ATS has, has her own files. But, you know, she wants to remain anonymous and I totally respect that. But she gave us some really great stuff that um, that did coincide with the photograph that we were examining at the time. You know, and at that point, I got to say, you know, if some guy's going to fake this photograph, and I put this on ATS as well, somebody's going to fake this and just pick a, a, a shot of O'Hare that they think uh, is going to work for their shot, they're going to fake it in such a way that it coincides with a witness's uh, testimony that wasn't even known <laughs> when he would have faked this shot. I can't buy that. I mean, it's just... That's too bizarre, uh, and that's too far yeah, removed well, for me to look at that and say, right. you know, okay, he faked it, and now, it, it, you know, this woman is saying that this is where she saw it. And I believe her. I mean, I I have no reason not to. I don't think she said anything outlandish or ridiculous or, or, or fringy, God, God save the word, but, hmm. you know, she seemed very credible and very down-to-earth about it. So, you know, again, that just kind of solidified to me that, that we could be looking at something that's a potentially authentic shot. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. 
And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Jeff Ritzman, and he's a UFO expert, photo imaging expert, a member of the Above Top Secret. Nobody's a UFO expert, Gene. Yeah. <laughs> enthusiast. Let's go on. Enthusiast, fan, fanatic, whatever. In any, yeah. case, in any case, we've been talking about this UFO encounter at O'Hare Airport, the aftermath, the eyewitness sightings, these photographs. We have one more segment to go here. This near hour has has gone by so quickly that I've hardly even noticed it. It's one of the speediest hours of the show that we've ever done. David, you had some comments to make. There are a couple of interesting things about this at this point, Gene. When Jeff and I were looking very closely at this image, there were a couple of things specifically that struck us as very compelling about uh, the potential authenticity of this first picture, this this main picture that we've been discussing tonight. And um, In doing detailed image analysis, there were some aspects of things about the picture that became very obvious, and these are things that would only be revealed under fairly close analysis. When Jeff spoke to to this woman, she corroborated a specific point that we found about the image that is not widely known, and we've not mentioned it tonight, and uh, to my knowledge, there's been no mention of it online at all. Something that we found in the image that she corroborated which especially made it compelling to us in terms of its potential authenticity. Besides the the location issue, which Jeff is underscoring here, that if indeed if someone wanted to fake this image, they would have had to do a little bit of work to really figure out where to put this thing in the sky. But that said, in deeper analysis of the image, some things became clear to us and obvious that all of a sudden really made this whole situation get very enigmatic. We found some things about the image that make us believe at this point that the image has been tampered with, that it's been manipulated. And this is very curious because some of the aspects of this manipulation are not consistent with someone faking an image. And again, it's important to sort of differentiate here the notion of faking an image, taking, let's say, what Jeff refers to as the congested shot and turning it into the UFO shot versus, let's say, taking an authentic photograph and manipulating it in a way as where under detailed analysis there would be some questions about the authenticity of the photograph that would make one question it even though on so many levels it does appear to be authentic and i've actually thought a lot about this today and but what occurred to me since the last time we spoke jeff and i think we we started talking about this earlier in the day was that it almost looks like the idea that somebody we're going to model a situation so this is a this is a simulation of reality not necessarily reality what if you had a legitimate photograph and you knew it was legitimate and you wanted to put it out in the world in a way that would make people look at any photograph that looked like this and question those photographs legitimacy based on this photograph potentially having anomalies that would call into question its validity what if you were preemptively trying to poison the the waters for other legitimate or potentially legitimate photographs to be considered as such. I think this is what's happened here. And at this point, 
and Jeff can chime in and, and give his own opinion, but I believe that we shouldn't really offer any further analysis or opinion about this one image. We're going to literally take it off the table for now. The things that we've learned from this image are really fascinating and will really help us in evaluating in a very strategic and objective way further images that surface. And I think in that sense it's served a purpose. But at this time, this image is almost so enigmatic that it makes one wonder who, if this image has been tampered with, who would have done it and why? Well, that's an interesting question here. Let's speculate for a second. Would it be the government creating disinformation or some UFO hoaxer who is out there and just trying to muddy the waters as is happening far too often in this field? Well, the sophistication of what we see in this image as far as reflecting being a true photograph, if it is, the sophistication that would have to be utilized to create this photo would be fairly extreme. This would not be a very basic retouching job. This would be something that would be a significant amount of effort, in my opinion. I'm curious to know what Jeff thinks about this, but if this was fabricated, it was done from by someone very capable, but if it's a legitimate photograph that's been tampered with, what would be that person's motivation? I think that's the key question to ask here. I think at least from my standpoint on it, I mean, as I say, I'm a little disappointed that we've kind of hit this point, but I think that a lot of, you know, on ATS, I get a lot of photographs thrown at me, and for the most part, uh, some of them are fairly well done. Most of them, I mean, let me be really honest about it and put this this way. The most of the photographs that I've gotten over the years to look at have been really hokey or Photoshop hacks who haven't a clue as to how to composite something in the correct way to make it even resemble authentic. I mean, hacks is a, is a generous word, in my opinion, for that. This, on the other hand, has so many deep things in it that, you know, I look at it and there's, I'm like, you know, if I was going to do this... <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, you know. I wouldn't have to. And, and the hidden objects in it, uh, the hidden anomalies, I should say, in it, I mean, are just ridiculous. And I don't think I'm willing to go out on any length and say, oh, it's the government doing this, or it's, uh, yeah. you know, it's definitely not, like I've said before, it's not definitely not a kid in his underwear in a basement uh, playing with Photoshop. I mean, and we're definitely no not blaming down. Richard Doty on this. No. I mean, <laughs> well, not yet, anyway. I mean, <laughs> because I know we I blamed mean, him for everything else. I figured yeah. we blamed him for this too yeah well you know not really um no we haven't uh, barely mentioned his name on this show actually yeah <laughs> it's one of those things that has a lot to it but like we've said there's certain things we're going to keep to the cuff that are going to really help us out and i'm sure at some point when more show up and i notice i say when because i just got this i mean i can't imagine why more wouldn't show up that when new wouldn't show up we're going to be able to we're going to go in better equipped or we're going to go in yeah. more knowledgeable about the event and maybe it's a little idiosyncratic than what a hoaxer a hoaxer is not going to know that kind of thing. So we're going to go in a little bit better gunned for uh, for being able to go over these with some real intent and some real uh, some good knowledge. foreknowledge, I mean, some foreknowledge right, exactly. of, of what we're of what we're looking at, which is really great to have. Mm-hmm. So um, we only have a know. few minutes left, Jeff. Maybe you could yeah. summarize things in the next two or three minutes as to where you intend to go from here. Where I intend to go from here is is basically from this microphone into my nice warm bed <laughs> and. Uh, Get some sleep, man. <laughs> and dream of something else besides O'Hare Airport. <laughs> Pretty much. For a guy who doesn't like to fly. It's like yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's um, it's it's been a hell.
hell of a week. And where am I going from here? I'm keeping an eye out from my seat on ATS here, you know, my my little corner, to just see what else shows up. There is going, you know, from what I understand from from AboveTopSecret.com, they are going to try to do something in order to get people to submit photographs to them from the event if they have them. And uh, I think that could be a real positive thing because we've already got eyewitness out there whose anonymity is obviously being protected. And I think that should make other people who have seen it feel more comfortable. So I would pretty much encourage anybody out there listening, if you saw this thing, to, to definitely, you know, contact myself, uh, David, you know, uh, this show, the Paracast, or AboveTopSecret.com. And uh, really, AboveTopSecret.com, because they are heading the, the, the piece to yeah. get more stuff. Is there an email address for AboveTopSecret.com? Actually, when you go to, to the website, to AboveTopSecret.com, you'll see a button that says Contact Above Top Secret, I believe okay. it says. Right. They can click on that and, uh, and talk, to, um, you know, talk to, to someone who works there that, can, um, that will, again, guarantee their anonymity, guarantee that they'll be protected, but at least will have their name so that we can qualify where they shot, how they shot, here's the picture, blah, 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 and go from there. So, well, what about poor Peter Davenport? Should we send him some information, too? No. Uh, hey, listen. Listen, Peter. You know, listen, don't. Uh, Peter's been doing a lot of good work here. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't see any reason to to do anything but to thank him for all the hard work he's done. He's one guy yeah. who's, you know, if it hadn't been for him, perhaps this story would have not made the the mainstream media at all. So maybe we're yeah. just trying to help him. The more information, the better, and the yeah, more research, right. the better. Uh, he he wants to understand what's going on. I, I, you know, a guy who puts that kind of time and effort into this is not doing it because he's getting some big paycheck. Sure. Uh, right. Yeah. He, he is definitely the kind of guy whose heart is in the right place and um, I'm hoping that when this is all said and done that we're able to help get to the bottom of what really happened that day and to prove that there was something very unusual that happened I think that would give Peter a lot of satisfaction and I, I don't I'm not I wouldn't speak for him but I would certainly think that that would be the case and so uh, you know I he's he's one of the good guys <laughs> yeah thank you very much Jeff Ritzman you're one of the good guys too Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much for joining us on the Paracast. Thanks, buddy. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. So, Brad Steiger, some years back you had a book out called Revelation, the Divine Fire. And I understand it's back in a new edition, but maybe before you tell us about the new edition, you could give us the history of the book. When did it first come out and was was the basic focus? I'd be happy to. The book first came out in 1973, and it was immediately, it became extremely popular because of timing. Everything is timing in publishing or media, as you well know. In life. And people were really upset. A lot of people with the kids taking drugs and leaving the organized church. And I remember being interviewed by a book reviewer in San Francisco. And he said, this book is perfect timing because it's going to answer a lot of questions for parents who are, are extremely upset with the new world, the new age that's coming upon us. And it was and has been one of my most, or many people say it's one of my most serious books, and, and it's the one book 
that wherever I go lecturing or doing seminars, someone will come up inevitably and say the book changed their life or gave their life a focus. And that's a very marvelous thing for an author to hear, you know, that something you wrote, something, that inspiration you received, put down on paper, was transmitted and translated into someone's psyche and had a life-altering experience. On the Paracast, we're talking to Brad Steiger, author, lecturer, man about town. Are you a man about town? No, I'm not. Okay. I just have to add that because it gives something a little bit more flavor to the various... Yeah, yeah. You know me, Gene. I'm not a man about town. No. You're just... Anyway, to go back to this book, okay, now... The book was out of print for a while? The book has been in various forms of printing, but never in the full edition. This is a a wonderful thing. You know, uh, people can't understand it probably, but I think they can project what it would be like, you know, to now be 71 years old and have a book that I wrote back when, in 1973, well, actually, 72 is I wrote it. It was published in 73, and to have it come back again for a whole new audience. And let's be realistic. It is a new audience out there. And to have that in, in a number of my other books, as, as I think you know, Strange Guest, 1966, that's come back out again. This is not That's a book, my- ladies and gentlemen, about my relatives, by the way. <laughs> oh, no. It might be. No. You never know. Might. No, not, not, not the relatives of yours that I've met, anyway. You but met my it, wife it is- and you met my son. You didn't meet yeah. really crazy people, except for my son, of course. Yes, yes. And he, uh, no, when I met your son, he was a very, very model of uh, decorum and, and politeness. And he said that Brad Steiger was a good person. Oh, that was nice of him. That was nice of him to say that. Yeah, he said, I guess he, we had he a, said that Brad Steiger, quote, was a good guy. Well, we had a rapport, didn't we? We really connected. Now, the uh, strange guest is, of course, about the poltergeist phenomena. Atlantis Rising is coming back into print after uh, being out for a long, long time. So I kind of feel like I'm having a rebirth here, guys. Uh, It's really, um, it's so gratifying to be able to see one's children undergo a a new incarnation and come back. And and as I said, it's definitely a new generation. It's the Internet generation. I still hope people read books. Uh, You know, it's... Uh, it is incredible what's happening, and, and I know, Gene, you've always been a computer whiz from the very first, and, and I've been in awe. I remember you were showing me a computer some years ago that, I don't know, it cost you several thousand dollars, and of course now one can get uh, a laptop for, you know, way under a thousand dollars. It's just incredible the way this field has grown. Yeah, well, that's almost another story. It creates good things, but it also could be a double-edged sword because it makes it easier for people to get online and say ridiculous things. Yeah, and uh, also take things that don't belong to them and take credit for it. Uh-oh. And take whole ho- chapters from books and put up on the internet. I'm sure every author has had that happen, and I, I don't know. There's, there's really no way to pursue it. There's no way to stop it. It gets you very frustrating, gets you very angry when you see half of your book that someone has just, even though they give credit, 
you know, say, oh, you should read this in Brad Steiger's book, and there it is. Well, the way I pay my bills is, you know, people buying books, and, and hopefully the publisher gives me some royalties. But seeing it all splashed up there for nothing, I, I don't know where the publishing world is going. Uh, I, I just sent uh, an article around to several people of uh, the publishing world, how it's changing. Is this the end of linear type? Is this the end of the book? And I heard from many fellow authors you know, saying the article made them weep, and it did me when I sent it. It's, we are undergoing, obviously, a dramatic change in our communications. Well, the way we for good and bad, it's easy to get online, it's easy to communicate with other people, but a person's intellectual rights have to be respected, and I can see where that's an issue. It is. Hmm. It is. You know, over the years, with all the stuff you've done, you've had some unusual encounters yourself. You've covered thousands and thousands of stories. And I think for the next few minutes, I'd like you to tell us, what do you think are some of the most frightening encounters that you have investigated? It could be UFOs, ghosts, poltergeists, whatever. Well, you could frightening take it in any or order. compelling. How or about compelling. compelling. We'll, go for, we'll go for compelling, yeah. sure. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a mixture. Uh, one starts out, and I've often recently felt, you know, that I, I look back I will, I'll look back, well, for example, you know, I had to do a lot of proofreading on my study of the poltergeist, my divine fire, and I'll come across passages and pages and think, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm really impressed with myself. That was, <laughs> I didn't realize I was that brilliant then. And then I'll turn the page and say, oh, my gosh, did I say that? Did I assume that? That was an example of naivete or innocence or inexperience. And when I began ghost hunting, which, you know, I have several books on like real ghosts, rest of spirits on the places that we've talked about before on your program, I've been fascinated because this is one way to me that demonstrates that life goes on and finding evidence in haunting cases. But I was quite smug in the beginning in which I, I really divorced the idea of a ghost from survival after death. Now, I, I believe that there is something within us that survives physical death, but I didn't associate it at first with the ghost phenomena. I thought the ghost phenomena, which I, I think most ghostly phenomena is, some type of residue that's impressed in the environment, the same way something light is impressed on film so that we have a record of it. I think it's something similar to that. But I made kind of a universal assumption that all hauntings fit into that category. And when I encountered instances in which there was definitely, undeniably, an intelligence, in some cases a hostile intelligence, a malignant intelligence, and an intelligence that I had angered and that physically assaulted me, that was, can, you, can you tell us about that, Brad? Or give us some specifics about that, if you would. Well, uh, I think there are houses that become poisoned. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, 
and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Right now, click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Brad Steiger, author, lecturer, and we're talking about, let's call it, some of his most compelling, fascinating, sometimes frightening experiences, and we're going to talk about this house, this troubled house, please. The house had been the receptacle of a series of murders. I have discovered over the years that major hotels have suicide rooms, as depressing as that sounds, where people probably were depressed. They came into the room. They committed suicide. Someone else had committed suicide there before. Well, I think this was a murder house. A terrible murder had been committed several decades ago in which a man literally blew his wife in half with a 12-gauge shotgun. The house sat empty for a time. Another couple moved in, and tragically, the same thing happened. One murder took place in the basement. Another took place in the garage. Since that time, the house had sat empty, and the bodies of transients had been found there. In one instance, the man's heart had been cut out, and he was lying in the basement. This was a sick poisonous house. We got a call from a family that had moved in and they were trying their best to survive. We heard this from police officers. We came to investigate. The place was just psychically charged with negativity. But I was at that smug time of my life. I thought I had the answers. I was in the room in the basement in which one of the murders had taken place. As I was standing in the room, the door kept trying to close on me. Now, this was in a very old house where someone had obviously just poured cement over dirt. And you really couldn't close the door without pushing it over several ridges, solid ridges of of cement. But this door was closing and pushing itself over those ridges. That indicated there was definitely a force. That should have been a clue for me. When I stepped out of the room, I said to my associates, go ahead and shut the blankety-blank door if the blankety-blank thing wants it closed. They closed it and locked it. We had no sooner gone upstairs when that door was ripped off its hinges. 
by the force within, and we heard clump, clump, clump like a giant coming up the stairs, and all of us in the room were lifted a number of inches in the air and dropped. How many people were in the room? Probably six or seven. And I had to recognize, guys, that there is an intelligence involved, an intelligence that I had angered, an intelligence that felt emotion. Well, that certainly was a life-altering experience for me. And in my subsequent investigations, I was very, not to placate the energies, but to say a prayer to surround myself and the others with white light of protection, or at least with positive thought, and to have some respect for the environment, not to come arrogantly, not coming thinking I had the answers, but as a seeker to, to investigate, which I certainly advise to others who now ghost hunting has become a, a fad, hasn't it? I mean, I think every town with a population over 500 has a ghost club. That's fine. But so many of these people are ill-prepared. You know, they've read one book, they've seen something on Discovery Channel, and they're ghostbusters, they're ghost investigators. They don't have the background. I've talked to some of them, and they, they know none of the giants in the parapsychological field, none of the scientists who have worked. They don't know the literature of the field. And I think they can be opening themselves up for some very unpleasant experiences. Now, is this something that you think is cyclical, Brad? Do people get interested in this and then do this for a while, and then it sort of falls off the popular radar, and then it comes back? Have In the years that you've been involved in this, do you see that kind of a cycle? Yeah, I, I've seen uh, a real cycle, of course, because of the number of years that I have been involved. Now we have television taking mm -hmm. a great interest. And I don't even know how many programs there are, you know, that, where they explore haunted houses. I really don't watch them because I, I've just become so frustrated and, uh, with the examples that I've seen that uh, sometimes, you know, it becomes silly. Sometimes they have a bunch of giggling teenagers who are supposed to be the investigators. <laughs> It's definitely a fad, and it, it has reached a fad status, right. and that's both good and bad. There's an acceptance then, more people are accepting it, but they're also not examining it and taking it as seriously as it really is. We don't need to sensationalize this field because it's sensational enough. We're talking about survival after death. It's not a parlor game. It's not something we do after the football game on Friday night with a bunch of kids. It's something to be taken seriously, and mm -hmm. that doesn't mean it just belongs to some elite group of investigators. Of course, everyone should be interested in exploring the unknown. So I'm not negating that. I'm right. simply saying that people have to be better prepared before they go out. Well, there's also the issue that it seems like these types of investigations can indeed potentially turn dangerous. I mean, you're describing a situation where you... Oh, yes. Yeah, you yes. agitated a, a, a something. I have to imagine that if people go out there and do stuff without knowing what they're doing, especially given that a lot of the research that I've seen seems to indicate that these entities, these spirits, whatever they are, especially the uh, malevolent ones, really seem to be attracted to teenagers for some reason. Absolutely. Why? That's why I'm so negative to reports of kids playing with, and I say playing, with Ouija boards. Right, yeah. That's nothing to play with. That, if anything, and, and I know, I know, every time I criticize it, I hear from 
psychics who say, I use this, I've used it for years. Well, fine, you're an adult, you learn how to prepare yourself, you've studied. But kids do it again, you know, after the football game on Friday night at the slumber party, opening themselves up. The poltergeist phenomena, which referred to earlier in my book, Strange Guess, I think it is largely, and we have to, I mean, we're not being stereotypical here, mm-hmm. but it attacks young females especially just entering puberty Mm. far more than it does young men and you know the the female psyche is so complex far more than than we fellows can can even guess when we're you know sometimes feel frustrated it's a creative it's a magnetic and think of all the hormonal and psychic changes that a young girl is undergoing it's just ripe for possession it's ripe for demonic entities to want to experience and want to feel the physical and what better than in a young pubescent female. So yes, those then who go out and and at that age and in their early teens and think they are exploring the unknown can run into some great difficulty. I've been called in so many times uh, to help parents calm a hysterical young woman who just and one very sad case that came to my attention a woman told how in the late 60s they were gathering on the beach they were playing you know the songs of the day having a great time and one of the girls said let's have a seance let's have a seance now this was in the 60s and the woman and again I'm not making this up she has been in and out of mental institutions since the 60s. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast, and we're talking to Brad Steiger, author and lecturer, author of, what, over 160 books, and we're talking about this young lady. Would you continue? The young lady had opened herself up. She had literally said, come, I sense the presence, I sense Mm -hmm. the spirit. She had all these young women and men in their early teens, all this energy, something did enter her. The woman who was relaying it had been her friend all these years and had seen the tragedy that woman had for one time of opening herself up. She then, her personality, was altered. She simply was, you know, we have to use an art ter- a term that may seem archaic to some. She was possessed. Now, I think that is something that certainly I had to become initiated. I come from a modern age as well. I mean, I did not believe in evil. I did not believe in demons when I began my research, my exploration. I thought this was, you know, a, a primitive atavistic way of describing mental illness or, or some other diseases. It wasn't until you know, I got lifted in the air and that, again, the seeing the force of something that could rip a door off its hinges, that kind of force, that kind of intelligence that then could become angered. I don't know if I use the term demon anymore because, it, you know, it's kind of religiously charged, but I do use the term spirit parasite that I think comes from another dimension. It's never been human. It's not the ghost of any deceased individuals, but I think they're entities that would love to feel, 
what it is to be human, would love to feel human emotion, and will, if we are in altered states, and that includes drugs, that includes alcohol, that includes sex, if we are in that kind of altered state and abusing that kind of altered state, then I think we open ourselves up to inhabitation, to possession by these entities. So Brad, I'm sure right now we have some listeners who are hearing this and they're thinking, if someone's in an altered state, isn't there a possibility that indeed what appears to be a possession is really a byproduct, a side effect of, let's say, severe drug use, like hallucinogens. And the second part of the question is, to your knowledge, has anybody ever endeavored in attempting to take someone who claims to be possessed and measuring their brainwave activity, their body functions, to actually create a reference for there being a definitive physiological differential when compared to, let's say, a normal state, so that you'd actually have some kind of physical, maybe not evidence, but physical measuring of difference that you could attribute to such an episode. I've heard of scientists researchers who have done that, David, but it's very controversial. Mm -hmm. And we have Michael Persinger, of course, who, who feels that by using certain brainwave modifications that he can actually replicate these experiences. Right. And there are many who have followed his lead. I don't think we can deny that these experiences can be replicated, but I often use the reference, you know, there are there are imitation roses, flowers that look so real until you touch them, you can't determine the difference. And I think we can replicate these experiences. But again, of course, that does not deny the actual experience. Now, when the experiments that I'm aware of have been conducted using, you know, various instrumentation to read heartbeat and, and pressure and, and the brain waves and so forth, there seems to be a spike and there seems to be a duality going on, but one can always argue the power of suggestion or that exactly. the very instrument itself was somehow uncaused. And it's the old scientific bugaboo of how do you separate the observer from the experiment in many cases. But I think this type of research should continue to be uh, developed, but it is yeah, it's very controversial. Sure. I, one of the things that's important to, to, I think, to mention, Brad, when we talk about scientific bugaboo, I don't want to put people off with that, and I think that that potentially makes people go, wait a minute, are you saying that science isn't valid? I think the important point is that people understand that at this point in time, our scientific instrumentation and our ability to measure things is in essence, constrained. I mean, here we are in a universe which is largely, as far as we can tell, inhabited by dark matter and energy, yet we've not been able to even measure or prove that this stuff exists, yet by all theoretical models, it has to, otherwise the universe couldn't exist the way it does. So I think when we talk about scientific capabilities of humans, we have to qualify the statement and say that we can try to apply science to understanding these things, but we have limited 
limitations in terms of our instrumentation and our current model of the nature of reality. It's certainly exactly by no right. means complete. Yeah. yeah. No, exactly right. Exactly right. And we as humans, we always seek definitions, don't we? We always seek to define and categorize, and we must. That is the nature of, of uh, our scientific inquiry. And we don't want but, people to tell us that there are things out there that we do not understand, and that's not just for 2007. That goes back whenever. You know, you can't yeah, tell yeah. us the Earth is round. We're not the center of the universe. Yeah, Man right. will never be able to fly. How could you come up with nonsense like that? Exactly, exactly. So the field of, of psychology, and I, I know when... Strange guess, as I said, I wrote it in, in 1966. Ivan T. Sanderson, who many of our listeners will will know, some won't, but certainly he was my mentor at that time. He, he was a man I admired very much, and he was the one who really motivated me to write this book. And I'm thinking, wow, as I'm going through it, you know, what about the research? You know, I mean, 1966. But, you know, the thing of it is, guys, nothing has really advanced beyond what I wrote in terms of the laboratory research and the scientific evidence and so forth in 1966. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your Fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the paradise with Gene Steinberg and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. I'll tell you what, before he tells us about the book, let me tell you you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Brad Steiger, prolific author, prolific beyond belief, author of over 160 books, all in the last three days. Actually, <laughs> actually, I know of one author who actually had more books than you, the late Walter Gibson who was the creator of The Shadow, or one of the creators of The Shadow, he wrote 300 shadow novels in the course of about 10 years. Now, these were not huge novels, but, you know, he, so he knew what evil lay in the, <laughs> the heart of men. Okay. Walter Gibson also, as I'm sure you guys are aware, uh, was an expert on magic yes. and wrote many books on magic. And he also was one of my, my heroes with Lamont Cranston and the, and so forth and and I think his novels were if I recall like 28,000 words they were novelettes really they were short novels words. whatever he could but he could 
currently but, but it was three weeks. weeks. It's like well, TV writers who could write a, a one-hour TV episode every week. It's amazing. Yeah, but I, I was able to spend a wonderful evening with Walter B. Gibson, as I say, one of my childhood idols. And, and I've been very fortunate in, in meeting them. Now, you asked about the strange guest. That was Ivan Sanders. I was writing a column called A Walk on the Weird Side for a tabloid newspaper out of Chicago that no longer exists, the National Tabler. And I received a fan letter from my hero, Ivan Sanderson. And we began a correspondence, and he he was at that time an acquisitions editor at a hardcover house. And he said, you know, I've been looking for someone to write a book about the poltergeist. Now, the poltergeist, for people who don't understand that, is German for pelting ghost or throwing ghost or noisy ghost. And it's it's the... uh, you know, the, the, whatever it is that throws objects, that sometimes will attack an individual, that sometimes causes things to burst into flame. Ivan felt that the poltergeist was the one area of the paranormal that could be proven because it leaves evidence, because it's demonstrably physical. He felt that a book needed to be done because, as, as I said, to repeat myself, he felt that science would recognize this as an actual phenomena and could study it. So with his guidance, I began work on the poltergeist phenomena. And it covers so many things from the Bell Witch to the, the present day to, at that time, an instance on Long Island that they called Popper, making bottles explode and, and so forth. So it, it's, oh, and then there was a newspaper office in San Francisco where all the typewriters, remember we're going back to the 60s, uh, were exploding and all the keys were flying off and, and uh, messing up a whole newspaper. And so there, again, all of these were traced back to a young person, either undergoing puberty or sexual adjustment. Newlyweds often experience poltergeist phenomena. The cases I've investigated, again, are overwhelmingly young females. Sometimes we have Mm. teenage boys who are frustrated and have that stress of of not being able to express their creativity. But it seems to be, and I'm not saying it's completely a female phenomena, but largely young females that are exploding this energy, or young men, as I said, undergoing sexual repression or sexual adjustment, as it was in the case of the newspaper in San Francisco. So they're fascinating cases. They're the the Bell Witch, which of course is the Roswell of, of ghost phenomena, the mother of all hauntings in America, where well, the headlines always say the first time a ghost actually killed someone. Well, that's kind of stretching it because whatever the entity was, what it did was substitute uh, a man's medication. So they took the wrong medication and killed. So in that sense, killed. But I think when you see some of those spooky headlines, you think, you know, ghost strangled him. Or hands wrapped around the guy's neck. Right, right, yeah. right. So it was, and and the ghost sang ribald songs and and, uh, nasty ditties at the man's funeral. Incredible case in the the Bell Witch. Rewind, rewind. The ghost did what? The the ghost, (laughs) this is such an incredible case, and as I said, it's part of American history, because Andy Jackson himself went to try to fight the Bell Witch and brought his his, uh, men, and he, he left it saying, you know, I would rather take on the British again in New Orleans than to fight the Bell Witch. 
This is an incredible phenomenon. It's, it's huh. been well documented. The entity, for some reason, took after the father, John Bell, and focused on Betsy Bell, the young daughter. And this was, it developed such a physicality. That, as I said, one of the friends of the family was well known as a rough and tumble frontier fighter and the witch slapped him silly. Andrew Jackson brought over several wagon loads of men and again the wagon wheels were stopped. This was an incredibly powerful force. It then began to develop a voice and the voice was then speaking in Hebrew and Latin and other languages. It had been incredibly developed and demonstrated an incredible intelligence to the point where then it could carry on conversations. Now, the materializations, now think of this. This is in the early 1800s. It would bring bananas. Now, bananas you just didn't get in, you know, the Tennessee of that time. It would manifest bananas. It would manifest hazelnuts and crack them for the mother. This is an incredible case of hauntings. Now, we have almost an equal case of manifestations and I always like to say what founder of the contemporary spiritual movement was the object of poltergeist phenomena and it's the Methodist, it's Wesley, it's the Wesley family that was haunted and had poltergeist phenomena so the founder of Methodism was the entire family again it developed a voice, it developed an intelligence, so what we're dealing with here Spirits of the dead? I don't think so. I think we're dealing with multidimensional intelligences that can sometimes enter our dimension. And you can, this is where you have to be careful, where you're talking, we were talking before. You can develop this. You can encourage this. Now, after the movie Sixth Sense, remember the little kid? Oh, yeah. It became, it, it became the model of, uh, for de decades, right. I mean, for months, didn't it? I see dead people. I had, and I, I'm so offended by this, I had so many parents writing to me asking how they could make or oh, help geez. their child see dead people. Right. They that thought that was, great. isn't that terrible? They oh, thought it was man. so cool that they wanted, now I told them, for goodness sake, if your child naturally yes. has an imaginary, imaginary playmate, okay, don't ridicule, don't mock. But don't encourage, because you can summon these things. I don't care how medieval that sounds to some people. You can summon these things, you can help them develop, and then you reach a point where, you know, you take out the crucifix or whatever. That doesn't matter. This has nothing to do with religion. This has no In fact, I think of all the cases that I personally investigated where a priest or a minister came first and was driven from the place, had dirty laundry dumped in him, had a broom whack him around the room. This has nothing to do. This is another intelligence from another dimension, and I'm not trying to be dogmatic because I don't know where the dimension is, but you can bring these things. You can summon them. You can make them grow stronger, which is why I my advice to people is to, you know, develop a more indifferent attitude. You hear a thumping in the corner of the house, in the corner of your room some night, don't say, oh, I must be the devil coming. You know, either ignore it or deal with it and say, I don't want you. You're not welcome here. Leave me. Leave me alone. Oh.
You are living in a case with Jesus and with David Bailey. You never know what's going to happen next. Brad, this, I want to get back to the Bell Witch haunting for a moment. David, before we go to Bell Witch, okay. let's go to tell our listeners this is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. We're talking to Brad Steiger, prolific author of over 160 books, second only to the late Walter B. Gibson, the fellow who wrote all those shadow novelettes or novels. <laughs> Among the books that Brad has written, Revelation of the Divine Fire, back in print, Strange Guests, and it sounds like my relatives, but it's not. And now, <laughs> David, you were going to ask. Well, Brad, you mentioned something about the Bell Witch events, and it, it, it brought up a question in my mind. You say that this entity, whatever it was, developed a voice and began having conversations with this family. What do we know about the contents of those conversations? Did they reveal anything about what this entity was or who it was? Uh, see, David, they always have a cover story. <laughs> they will be whomever you want them to be. And that's why I caution people so much. What were these people told? Okay, what? see, this is where it really gets complicated. John Bell and the family thought that this was the ghost of a woman who had put a curse on John Bell, old Kate Batts. The problem is, fellows, Kate Bass wasn't dead. She was still alive. So this entity, this is very fascinating, assumed the persona because that's who people wanted her to be because old Kate Batts was, was a, a strong woman, a forceful woman who had had uh, a fight with John Bell over land dispute. But she was very much alive. So it is more correct simply to call it the witch or the demon. And, well, was she actually a witch? That's what she called herself. She never gave herself a name, but she allowed herself to be entitled in that manner. Now, again, in other cases, they will be whom you think they are or who you do research and say, ah, it must be so-and-so. I had a, a case when my office was in a, a college town, and one night, I, because I'm a night person and, and everyone would eventually know that in the community, I heard banging on my door, and here was a bunch of college girls who'd been working with a Ouija board. Okay, they were doing research, they thought. And the entity at first described herself as a young woman who had had an unrequited love affair. Well, then he the lover came through so they were communicating with two individuals now they looked it up and they actually found that there was a couple of that name who a hundred years or so ago had died under mysterious circumstances they thought they were really building a case and they would bring it down to me the spook case chaser and show them show me how what diligence they had then just when they were lured into this and they were communicating with the entities by name, suddenly they developed obscene, totally perverse attitudes and characteristics and began physically this, this energy assaulting the young college women to the point where they realized they were up against something they couldn't handle. Then they come screaming down the office to me, but they had done it elaborately. This entity then lets pretend that we can think of what the entity saw these young women, 
saw what they were into, stood back for a time, and then the door opened. The psychological door opened. It gave this entity an entry into this dimension. And it could easily assume the personality and the events of this person who actually lived. But I don't believe for a minute it was the ghost of that individual. And I don't believe for a minute in so many cases I've investigated like it that it is a surviving entity. It is a masquerader. It is a mimic. It has come to do harm. It has only one motivation, and that's to harm us, not to give us wisdom from beyond. That's, that's a whole other area. That's a whole other dimension. That's revelation of the divine fire where I deal with those entities. In strange guests, it's a far different land. But Brad, how do you know? How do you differentiate? How do you really know whether an entity is telling you something that's meant to benefit you or to harm you? I mean, if you have a voice of God speak to you, how can you really trust what that is? Maybe that's an entity also trying to make you think something. That's There's not- only one way, and it's the tried and true way. By their works, you shall know them. You have to be cautious. You don't say, wow, I'm really on to something here. You have to slowly see the works. The proof is in the works. Well, sure. Look, probably, and and I've spoken about this with Gene before, and I assume that you're knowledgeable about the rather infamous case, probably the single most studied paranormal thing of the 20th century was Arigo in Brazil, a spiritist, healer, and psychic surgeon who claimed to be possessed by the spirit of a German doctor, Dr. Fritz. and. Right. Over 20 years, Ari Go cured, and, and there's a, a huge amount of proof about this case mm-hmm. and documentation. Mm-hmm. He cured almost 2 million people. I mean, that's one case, certainly, where we could say, all right, there is a spirit involved, it appears, and this spirit's intentions were certainly good. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of people's lives were saved. But um, the the case of Arigo almost stands out as an exception in this realm, where there was definitive, as you said, judged by the actions. Well, the actions here prove beyond, as far as I'm concerned, any any shadow of doubt that what was going on was genuine and was beneficial. Mm-hmm. But how many other cases like that have we ever heard of? Well, I think what we're talking about now, David, is, is individuals who are listening us to us right now and saying. You know, I have had this experience. How do I test it? And we're not talking about someone who's, you know, probably, I hope not, I won't advise it, going to go public and become a great psychic, speak to the dead on television and so forth. But I think everyone, you know, has this ability. I think that all of religion begins with the individual mystical experience. And we have a right, a birthright, a cosmic birthright, as human beings to be able to expect to have a mystical experience. But we must be cautious. We must not inflate our egos. That's the big problem, isn't it? When the ego becomes inflated. I hear certain psychics on television and they speak in absolutes. They have no question. I mean, they speak in absolutes. Sylvia and, Brown should fall off a building. I, I well, mean, okay. I, I wasn't going to mention any name. Oh, well, I'm happy to. She should fall off a bridge. But when you say that people have a right to uh, these kinds of experiences, is it a right, Brad, or is it a privilege? Which is it? Well, 
It is both. It is okay. both. And, and I think we must always treat it with the utmost respect. So if it helps an individual to see it as a privilege, then definitely with respect. But again, I'm saying it doesn't belong to a few people. That's the point I, I meant when I said it's our right. It doesn't just belong to a few people. It doesn't mm -hmm. belong to those people you see on television doing readings. It belongs to all of us. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.com. Net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biennale. You never know what's going to happen next. What belongs to all of us is the airwaves. And we are presenting the Paracast, or at least we think it belongs to all of us, but some people would prefer to tell us otherwise. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have prolific author Brent Steiger, author of Revelation of the Divine Fire, Strange Guests, many other books. Many of his titles are coming out in brand new editions for a new generation of readers. David. Excuse me, sir. I, I, I heard what you just said, that, and I would just like to state that I am the decider. I decide who has has revelation. I decide who has the love of the universe. I am the decider. I have decisions on my mind. I decide. You do not decide, and Mr. Steiger does not decide. I decide, for I am the ultimate power. I am the Twinkie. Thank you very much, gentlemen. <laughs> I am the decider. What, what was that? Well, uh, we don't want to go into the political realm because our few listeners who are who are get emotional about this will uh, will probably stop listening to the podcast at this point. But this was just something that set me off today when I had to read in the media that. Uh, okay. We don't we don't want to go there. I am the decider. I decide. Oh, okay. That was the first headline that caught my eye today. Oh my God! I just uh, and I thought what. What oh. is this? What is it? And we talk about poltergeists. I think that we have in this particular situation a number of possessed souls, and what they're possessed by is something I don't want to contemplate. Okay. We don't want to back get into that. Let's get back, back to the paranormal programming. Yeah. Yes, let's get back to our regularly scheduled programming oh, where man. we talk about the paranormal, not those who wish they were paranormal. Yes. So, Brad, on a serious note, as you've looked at this stuff over the years, do you get the sense that we're ever in our lifetimes going to get a real handle on any of this? Or is this just going to continue to be this great mystery that 
can't be solved. That you know, when we talk about these topics on the Paracast, whether we're talking about spirits or UFOs, one gets the sense that in all of these years of studying these things, and all of these the years of humans experiencing these things, that we're no closer today to the truth than we were a hundred years ago. What do you feel about that? I've always been a cockeyed optimist, but you know, as as I grow older. And I look over the years and I study the lives and the work of some of the great, great investigators, researchers who have gone before. It seems so elusive, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And I just keep falling back on schoolhouse earth that this seems to be a training ground. This seems to be a learning ground. When, when I was a kid and in high school way back in the 1950s, I really felt by the year 2000 that you know, it was going to be a very different world, that bigotry and prejudice and wars would be abolished. Now here we are after the year 2000 going into the new century, and I see more bigotry, more ethnic cleansing, more hatred, more prejudice than ever, it seems. It seems as though we do take a step forward and then two steps back. But again, I think Goethe, Goethe, who is one of my great spiritual mentors, said the striving is more important than the goal. And I guess that's what sustains me. This is the process. It's being involved in the process of learning and discovering where we each as an individual earn our own, excuse me, put quotes around it, salvation, or our own, if you prefer, awareness, or our own enlightenment. And maybe that's what this is, just an individual path that must be followed for awareness, individual awareness. Well, the, I think the important thing to point out here is that Enlightenment is potentially available to those who expend the effort in achieving it. Exactly. I mean, when people turn to religion and they expect neatly packaged answers to, you know, what is the nature of reality? What is the purpose of life? People look to these external experts. Isn't the whole idea that you have all the answers inside of you if you care to take the time and expend the effort to reveal those answers? Yeah, I, I very much believe in the individual shamanism of of everyone that we that's what we're supposed to do we are to go on our own vision quest we are to seek our own path by the same token uh, and this is very interesting because i just received an email just before the program of, of someone i've known for years who has been very devout and because of the situation with priests and molesting of youth says he's he's leaving the church after all these years he, he's just yeah. had it how do you answer such a person i mean you uh, this is a person who extremely intelligent and has wrestled with this that's one of the reasons way back in 73 i wrote divine fire because i saw again how the youth were leaving organized religion how they were seeking an individual path and that's really what divine fire is about how we can each seek and find our own way at the same time i will never belittle organized religion because and this is this sounds and there's just no way to say it and i'm not saying it from an arrogant point of view or a superior point of view but there are those who there's a schoolhouse earth now they're in the grade they're in the class where they need that for support whether it's emotional or spiritual so again i'm not saying wow i'm so much better i'm not saying that at all but we each have
have to explore these things on an individual path, on an individual basis. And when you receive enlightenment, when you receive the gift of illumination, then if you choose to remain in a spiritual family, that's your choice. That's wonderful. But so many people find that, as I said, individual shamanism, the individual priesthood is available to everyone. Well, we, we can still, you know, some people, I've heard this, you've heard this. You know, if you leave religion, you're going to become a bad person. Our society will fail. We need to have that mass structure. I think more and more people are seeing how, unfortunately, certain representatives of those mass structures of spirituality are doing very negative, hostile, unfriendly, destructive things in the name of the concept of God that they have. And people then are in a very difficult time right now because they want spirituality, they hunger for spirituality, and they, they see so many of the faults with it. They see one spiritual leader of another after another who sets himself up, who sets himself up as infallible, then found in a scandal, then found in stealing money, then found in a sexual situation. We have leaders who declare that they are somehow impervious to the act of murder and feel they can send thousands of young men and women to be killed. And people are saying, now, isn't there some kind of contradiction here? Is this really practicing what you preach? And I think we have for organized religion, we have a very difficult time ahead. But that doesn't mean the nation's being destroyed. If we can become a spiritual nation, if we can really support one another as all the great teachers, all the great masters. I mean, if you study religion as I have, and every day we read from, we read from all the faiths, we read, and we see the unanimity, we see the oneness. They're all saying the same things. As soon as we can recognize that, that we are one, that there is only one spirit, there is only one supreme being, there is only one life force there is only one soul and we're each have our individual part of it we're not the ocean but we're the individual waves and that's all together we make the ocean and if we realize that then we become stronger as a nation you know the the problem with the discussion is that discussions are always framed by a context and it would appear that in today's world polarization has replaced any sense of balance where you're, you're required basically to take an extreme view one way or the other, Brad. And I know that a number of listeners that are tuned into the show right now are thinking, uh-oh, they brought up spirituality and they brought up God, so now it's all about New Age theories and crystals and the woo-woo <laughs> message. And it's sad because the reality is, and, and I think that when we look at all of the paranormal stuff that we cover on the show as one thing, we realize that in taking these extreme polarized views, whether these are polarized religious views or polarized political views, or in certainly in terms of technology, we've, we've come to the point now where we believe that technology is a religion. I mean, it's whatever happened to the sense of balance of having a worldview that encompasses all the useful elements from all these different areas and synthesizes them together in a way that is both acceptable and perhaps even pragmatic. You know, if we believe that we are somehow the ultimate definition 
of what the universe can create as intelligent beings, and I feel sorry for the universe. If reality <laughs> TV is the best stuff this universe can come up with, we've got a big I, I, I was just going to say, David, I was, I was going to, I'm sorry, I would have beaten you to your punchline, and that wouldn't be right, but I was going to say, good Lord, have mercy on the, on the universe if we're the highest form of life. Well, just think we have American Idol. That's the pinnacle. Oh, God. Hey, we're out of time. We're out of time. And David knew Hey, guys, I've enjoyed it as I always do. I, I, I enjoy this. It's always stimulating when we get together. And it's always a lot of fun. And thank you, my friend, for joining us once again. Brad Steiger, prolific author, Revelation of the Divine Fire, strange guest. Look up the name Brad Steiger on Amazon. You'll find lots and lots of great stuff. Brad, thanks for joining us on the Power My Cast. pleasure. Take care. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.